Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jude 3 Project Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I'm so excited because Courageous Conversations is back. We weren't able to have it last year because of COVID, but this year it is back with a vengeance. We are so excited for the seven amazing topics we have, Christianity and white supremacy, rediscovering early African Christianity, black religions and the next generation, slavery in the Bible, politics in the pulpit, truth and trauma, patriarchy in the church. We are squeezing a lot of courageous conversations this year in Washington, D.C., September 3rd and 4th at National Community Church. Listen, you don't want to miss it. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Now, this is a hybrid conference. We have 250 in-person tickets available, and they are on the way to selling out. Um, So the next option would be the virtual pass. All of that is available at CourageousCombos.org. I'm so excited about it. We have amazing panelists. We have Dr. Christina Edmondson, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Dr. Esau McCauley, Dr. Eric Mason, Dr. Lisa Bowens, Dr. Otis Moss, Dr. Marvin McMickle, Dr. Vince Bantu, Dr. Jacqueline Rivers, Dr. Cheryl Sanders. It's going to be amazing. I would not miss it, whether in person or virtually. So get your tickets today at CourageousConvos.org. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. This episode is sponsored by the new film, Respect. Respect, starring Jennifer Hudson, follows the rise of Aretha Franklin's career from a child singing in her father's church to her international superstardom. Aretha handpicked Jennifer to betray her in this film, the remarkable true story of Franklin's journey to find her voice and never lose faith. Her music shaped a generation, topping music charts with anthems still relevant today, from think to respect to amazing grace. Jennifer Hudson's live performances of Aretha's songs demand to be seen on the big screen. I saw it and it was a great film. Respect also stars Forrest Whitaker, Marlon Wayans, Audra McDonald, Mark Marone, Titus Burgess, and Mary J. Blige. Don't miss Respect in theaters now. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the G3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Christopher Townsell. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. For those who don't know who you are, just tell our audience just a little bit about you. Sure. So I am an assistant professor of history and African studies at Penn State. Um, and my research concerns um race and politics in South Sudan and the Africana world more broadly. That's that's awesome. Um, we got connected through Twitter. Uh, you saw, you heard about G3 uh, on, through Christianity Today's magazine. And then I saw your tweet. And then I saw in your About Me section, your professor. So then I went and looked up uh, your page at, at your school. And so I was like, oh, this is a very interesting uh, kind of focus. And I would love to get him on the podcast. And here we are. So sure. Twitter is well, good, for, good for great things. 
Exactly. Yes, it is. Um, it makes the world a lot smaller, um, which I appreciate. Um, and it's been amazing just to, you know, learn about the Jew3 uh, project. And I've been to uh, your website and, um, you know, it just seems like really amazing, important. And of course, in this day and age, very timely work. Um, so thank you uh, for your work and all that you do. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to get into uh, your your discipline. What uh, what kind of sparked your focus in South Sudan? Sure. So, um, you know, it's really, I guess, to have a succinct story. Um, so, of course, you know, I grew up in a Christian household. Um, I would identify myself, I guess, as non-denominational. Um, and I went to Catholic schools growing up in suburban Chicago. Um, and it was kind of at a young age where I got really interested in kind of the blending between faith and politics, right? And this really increased after 9-11 um, when I became aware of this kind of increasing discourse of the war on terror as a war against evil, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, this uh, phrase axis of evil was used to describe um, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. And so I became just really fascinated with this question of how do people of my Christian faith deploy these terms like good and evil in the public sphere and mm -hmm. in conflict zones? And so it was through that very circuitous way um, that I landed upon the Sudan, right? This uh, Northeast African country um, that for the last century or so um, has really been defined as this Arab and Muslim North and Black Christian South. Mm. Um, and since the late 19th century, a lot of the conflicts that have occurred in that region um, have been framed in these, for lack of a better sense of the term, these neo-crusader-like terms, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I really got hooked. Um, I am not of Sudanese ancestry, um, but as an African-American, I was just really fascinated to the kind of relationship between race and religion that is in some ways different, of course, from the American context, but in other ways, as we're seeing now, right, um, with kind of the rise of white Christian nationalism, um, I think also offers a lot that we in kind of the African-American um, Christian tradition can learn from. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. So what is the state of race and politics in South Sudan? Sure. So um, South Sudan seceded from its northern neighbor, Sudan, in 2011. Um, and so South Sudan is currently the world's youngest nation, right? I just... Uh, celebrated its 10th year um, anniversary of independence um, on uh, July the 9th. And so most people in South Sudan would certainly identify as being African as opposed to being Arab, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, even that kind of use of the term African as a kind of counter identity to the racial identity of Arab is in and of itself, right, kind of a complicated, messy use of the term, right? Because it mm -hmm. would imply that, you know, an Egyptian 
Arab, right, is somehow not African or is less African than someone um, born in Ghana, right? Um, but that's just to say that most people in South Sudan, uh, to answer your question, would identify racially as black, right? Um, culturally as Arab. And the majority about um, between 60 to 70% of the country identifies as Christian. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. In your book, uh, you you have a quote from Maku Mat Mata. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, think, I'm uh, pronouncing that right. He stated that race, not religion, is the fundamental fault line in Sudan. Though religion has certainly added fuel to the fire in, in the South. Um, that's that's an interesting point. Um, can you share a little bit about, about that? Sure. So one of the interventions that I um, hope that my book is making is to blur the lines between race and religion, right? Mm. And so rather than necessarily referring to them as being entirely distinct, right? What my book shows is that religious thought has often been used to define racial identities and differences, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are a South Sudanese Christian who for decades has identified Black South Sudanese with, let's say, the Old Testament children of Israel, right? Then implicit is that is that Black people, right, in this particular geographic context are God's chosen people, right? Mm -hmm. And the oppressors in this framework, right, if we're um, likening Sudanese Arabs to um, biblical Egypt, right, or biblical mm -hmm. Babylon, right, you are now infusing this Arab racial counter identity with a counter spiritual identity, right? Mm -hmm. And so what would it mean if in, you know, the U.S. context, right, um, and now, of course, you know, I'm thinking about people like James Cone, right, um, what what would it mean to um, to marry my black racial identity with my spiritual identity, right? Mm -hmm. What would I then be saying that anytime I identify as David, that I'm identifying non-black races as Goliath, right? Mm -hmm. Or you know, if I'm identifying as you know one of the children of Israel destined to reach my uh, proverbial promised land are those of other races, basically, you know, Ramses, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's just to say that I'm in no ways arguing that race and religion are the same, but my book is arguing that um, in many respects, perhaps, and of course this can be debated, but it's impossible to talk about one without the other, mm -hmm. right? Um, so yeah, so my response to him would be, um, you know, not to necessarily say that he's wrong, but to say that it's not an either or, right? Mm -hmm. That it's a both and. Mm -hmm. As you were talking, I couldn't help but think of Hebrew Israelism. I'm not sure how familiar you are with, with that group, but the way in which them taking on the identity of Hebrew people in America and then making those who are non-Black 
the uh, Gentiles uh, and that we that we kind of will overthrow them in the end uh, is a very interesting parallel to what you're saying is happening in Sudan with the Africans and Arabs. Uh, that is that is very, very fascinating. Yeah, and it gets even more complicated, right, if we inject the reality of ethnicity, right? Mm -hmm. So while most South Sudanese would racially identify as Black, we know that the history of ethnicity in South Sudan goes even deeper, right? Um, South Sudan is one of the most ethnically diverse regions in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, it has at least what have been recorded over 60 spoken languages in the country, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, as we know, of course, right, um, if we think about, you know, the ancient Hebrew past and, um, you know, we might think about the 12 tribes, right? Mm -hmm. And so while they constituted a single group collectively, right, comprising God's chosen people, right? we know that they were ethnically diverse, right? So same God, but different, you know, tribes, different bloodlines to a certain degree, right? Um, different ethnic groups. And so in South Sudan, right? Um, you know, what becomes of this notion of, hey, we're all Christian and we're all black, but we still have these very real ethnic distinctions distinctions mm -hmm. that sometimes can even erupt into conflict. Um, and so what you've had um, are these kind of competing streams of thought, right? On one hand, you have the stream of thought, um, I believe that Paul talked about um, with respect to, you know, in Christ, right? There is neither Greek nor Jew, Gentile or Scythian, right? But all are one in Christ. And mm -hmm. so there is this impulse to say, let's downplay tribal or ethnic identity and subsume it into a collective Christian one. Mm -hmm. But you have a different school of thought that says, well, just like God created black people and white people and brown people, that ethnicities are a creation of God as well, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so if God made me you know, a Dinka, right, then I should lean into and actually celebrate my Dinka-ness, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I, I can't speak to how um, those African-Americans who, to your point, have kind of adopted um, uh, this Hebrew-Israelite identity do or do not, you know, um, adopt or approach this issue of ethnicity, right? Um, mm -hmm. But that's certainly something in South Sudan that adds an additional layer um, to identity, race, and religion. Mm -hmm. When you, uh, I know a lot of your work has to do around liberation. Um, some, some of Cone's thought as it relates to liberation, how is that connected to the uh, your study of, of uh, South Sudan? Sure. So one of my main arguments in the book, right, is to say that for many South Sudanese, the story of South Sudan's 
attainment of independence is also a spiritual chronicle, right? And by that, I mean that for many in South Sudan, the way that the process of political liberation from the Sudan is talked about is framed very much in spiritualized liberation terms, right? Where the, uh, the attainment of independence in 2011 was seen as literally a kind of crossing the Jordan promised land moment. Mm. And so the way that I kind of put South Sudanese religious thought in conversation with James Cone is this notion that Christianity for so long in the 20th century in South Sudan has been connected with the theme of liberation, right? That the faith was in essence, the faith of those resisting oppression, mm -hmm. right? Um, I believe that it was uh, James Cone and, um, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing this man's name, but um, uh, Gerard Wilmore, right? Who said, or who framed Jesus Christ as the liberator par excellence, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that in many respects in South Sudan, Christ has been seen as just that, right? But that it was not being, that Christ was not being spoken of in these kind of lofty metaphysical terms, but that mm -hmm. the oppressor was very real, right? The oppressor had a race, right? The oppressor had a geographic location, the oppressor had names, right? And so Christ was made, basically, I argue, a political figure, right? That to, that to claim Christian identity was to claim basically being a soldier in a fight against oppression. Mm -hmm. And so that's just to say that for me, um, the way that I approach the history of Christianity in South Sudan is to say that it is, it must be done through this lens of liberation. And again, I think that this is something that I think a lot of African American readers of the book will be able to identify with, right? Um, that we know that for so long in this country, um, Black Christianity, right? has not simply been um, that Blacks just so happen to be Christian, <laughs> right? But that we know that, you know, if we were to think about, um, you know, Eddie Glaude's, you know, work in terms of um, his book on kind of the book of Exodus in the Black imagination, right? Mm -hmm. We know that these themes of a promised land and Exodus, slavery, right? oppression, that all of these are tied intimately with our faith beyond simply being Christian, right? Mm -hmm. um, so a very kind of instrumentalist use of the faith. Um, and so, um, you know, th this is something that created, I guess, um, some conflict, um, or if one were to put African theology in conversation with Black theology, because um, the father of, um, of African theology, um, John Mbiti, um, critiqued James Cone and Black theology with the argument that it was too focused on liberation, right? Mm -hmm. And this notion that one 
takes a risk if they basically see or try to interpret or read liberation into every scripture, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what does Christianity become for a person once they're in the proverbial promised land, right? Mm -hmm. If it is too, um, if, if it is too intimately linked with this notion of liberation, what becomes of a person's faith after they are in fact em emancipated, right? Um, no, that's, that's helpful because um, what, what then people start to see faith as something that's obsolete once they transcend behind the states of oppression. So if they go from um, obscurity to prominence, poverty to wealth, then scripture then has no answer for them because they've they've loosed the chains of oppression and bondage. And so I think that's a very good point. Um, if you read liberation into every passage, you have nothing left for you after that. Um, and then it is also God's word is for the oppressed and the oppressor. So um, mm, wow, that <laughs> is. That's a deep one. <laughs> yeah. That that is uh that's the the picture of grace that we all need. Um and that is you know when you look throughout history of the scripture in the Old Testament it was the when they were uh liberated uh when they weren't following God's law they acted as oppressors. Um again, enslaving people, treating people unjustly and, and not helping people on the margin. So I, I think that's a great critique um, that he leveled in that. Um, is there anything else you want to share about liberation that you think is, is, is helpful for our audience? Sure. Um, and the last point connected to liberation that I would make actually, you know, just builds upon um you know, the very astute point that you just made, right? This this broader question of, you know, what happens after the formerly oppressed cross the Jordan, right? Um, the movie, um, and I believe the movie was called Exodus. Um, this was uh, by Ridley Scott, you know, a few, um, a few years ago, um, the Hollywood, adaptation um of the of the biblical exodus story and there's um a scene that is very well done in my opinion um that does not have a biblical foundation but i think kind of you know i imagine that something like it could happen <laughs> um mm -hmm. but there's this scene where right after they cross the red sea um joshua and moses are sitting down you know, and Joshua is, you know, exhausted, but it's, you know, he has the exhaustion of victory, right? Like mm -hmm. we made it, we are finally free. And Moses turns to him and it's like, but what's next? You know, what now? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And I think that the what now question is so important when we're talking about liberation and liberation theology, right? Because mm -hmm. um, as Christians, right, we know, of course, that the ultimate liberation right is kind of you know liberation from you know um sin you know the flesh and kind of all of the you know icky things 
kind of come with sin, right? And that, you know, we have our ultimate liberation in Christ, right? Mm -hmm. But to your point, right, the points that you just made, if we're talking about Christians suffering op oppression in this life, you know, what do we do, right? How do we show up in this life once we attain that promised land, right? Um, mm -hmm. And as you said, you know, um, the book of Judges, you know, pretty dark, <laughs> right? Um, and so we see kind of, you know, the biblical example of what happened, you know, and so how do we in 2021, as we continue, right, to fight um, our own forms of oppression, you know, what can we learn from the biblical example in terms of a script of what to do and what not to do? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Um, what are some, I know you've already kind of shared some parallels, but what are some additional parallels uh, between the African-American experience and those uh, Africans um, in, in South um, Sudan and, and what can we learn from them? Sure. So um, great question. One parallel um, is the reality of slavery, right? And not just slavery in kind of the metaphorical sense, but the actual experience of, you know, chain bondage slavery, right? Mm -hmm. um, the history of slavery in the Sudan um, and really in Northeast Africa goes back to the ancient times, right? Going all the way back to the days of ancient Greece and Rome. Um, and slavery was a weapon that the Sudanese government used in the Second Sudanese Civil War, which was fought between 1983 and 2005, right? Mm -hmm. So much so that um, you had Christians like T.D. Jakes and Al Sharpton, you know, really using their popularity in the early 2000s and the late 90s, in fact, to draw attention to the reality of slavery in the Sudan, right? So the African-American general audience would certainly, for obvious reasons, be able to relate, right, to the kind of history of slavery. But then also, mm -hmm. right, the fact that this is a race-based slavery and that mm -hmm. in Sudanese history, right, the kind of um, uh, the master class, if you will, was often defined by Arab ancestry while those who were enslaved were not only darker skinned, but also came from these social and political margins, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that that's absolutely, um, those are two aspects that African-Americans, again, for you know the very obvious reasons of how slavery existed in this country would be drawn to and would relate to. Um, and so it's for those reasons that I think that um, the Sudan really warrants a closer look and a closer engagement from the African-American community. Um, as an African-American myself, right, I think that growing up, oftentimes the images of Africa were very much connected to West Africa and South Africa, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, places like Ghana, Nigeria, and of course, South Africa. Now, I think that there were legitimate reasons for why that was the case, right? Obviously, 
Um, a lot of African-Americans are descended from people who were stolen, right, from West Africa. Um, and then, of course, with the reality of apartheid and kind of, um, you know, I'll just say at the recency bias, right, mm -hmm. um, of apartheid, right? But, you know, one of my kind of main arguments as an African-American scholar of Africa is that there is more, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. that, um, that there are so many reasons why African-Americans should be interested in Northeast Africa and Central Africa and East Africa, and dare I say, even North Africa, right? Which is often conceptually speaking, I think really divorced from how we imagine Africa, right? If we think mm -hmm. about say, how we think about Egypt compared to Congo, right? Mm -hmm. We might think about ancient Egypt, right? When we wanna think about kind of the glories of Africa before transatlantic slavery, but a lot of us might not associate modern Egypt, right? And mm -hmm. a, a place like modern Cairo or modern Morocco with Africa in the same way that we think about Ghana, Congo, South Africa, right? Um, and so one of the kind of implicit, and I don't even think I really put this in the book explicitly, mm -hmm. but one of my hopes is that African-American readers who do read the book would kind of have that mind-blowing moment of, whoa, like I can really relate to this and I'm not used to learning about Sudan or South Sudan. I've been so bombarded with kind of these other African contexts and examples, you know? I wonder what more I don't know about Africa, broadly speaking. Um, so it's my hope, however grand or unrealistic um, it might be, but, but it's my hope that um, our consciousness of Africa as Black Americans would expand from the kind of traditional um, uh, locations of focus to those that have not gotten as much attention. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful. And, and the slavery piece, um, as you begin to talk about that, I begin to think about the fact that um, there, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but their slavery lasted longer and is still in effect today. Um, and it's, is it still in effect? And then it was Muslims uh, for the majority enslaving Africans, which is very fascinating because there's a stream of thought that Islam is the original uh, religion of Black people uh, when Christianity predates Islam. So it's very interesting how all of that plays out. Do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. So, um, so one, um, to answer your first question, yes. Um, the West African nation of Mauritania, um, as well as Sudan, have been identified as two countries on earth um, where it is alleged that um, basically practices that we might identify as slavery um, have existed, right? Um, I don't know if slavery in those two countries has been completely stamped out, right? You know, and of course, both governments would absolutely say that it has been. 
Um, but it is to say that to your point, you know, if we think about how long slavery existed in this country, right? So if we're going from, you know, 1619 to 1865, what that's roughly 230 um, years or so. Um, when we're talking about slavery in Africa, we're talking about a far more ancient practice, right? Um, but your integration of race and religion into the equation is an important one, right? Because um, what I have found in my research and in interviews that I have done actually correspond with Macau Matua, um, whose quote you referenced earlier in the interview, right? Which is to say that skin color was oftentimes um, the kind of defining feature that marked who was enslavable and who enslaved, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's just to say that um, it wasn't necessarily a slavery restricted to kind of Muslims and non-Muslims or, you know, Muslims enslaving Christians, even though, you know, that certainly may have happened, but it also was drawn along skin color so that you might have people in Darfur, right, in Western Sudan who are, you know, phenotypically speaking, right, extremely dark skinned, still being oppressed by lighter skinned people, despite the fact that they're both Muslim, right? Mm -hmm. So that's just to say that Muslims may have certainly enslaved other Muslims, but in this instance, skin color, you know, was the defining um, characteristic, but that is absolutely an astute question and one that, um, I kind of examine in my second book, which is currently in progress, because in the late uh, 1990s, um, the Nation of Islam um, had a close relationship with the Sudanese government, right? Mm -hmm. Now, why would that be potentially problematic? Well, the Sudanese government, again, right, was responsible for the suffering of black people in the Sudan, right? But of course the nation of Islam being a Muslim group and the Sudanese government being a Muslim state, right? Um, it kind of threw this question of solidarity politics into the fore, right? What yeah. does it mean or what might it mean for an African-American Muslim to support an African Muslim government that is persecuting black people, right? Um, you know, which solidarity gets harnessed, right? Is it race over religion? Should we support people of shared faith despite, you know, racial oppression, right? Um, this kind of either or dynamic um, is a very interesting one that I explore in my second book. Well, this has been a very rich conversation. I've learned so much. Uh, is there anything else about South Sudan that you want to share with our audience before we close out? And also, I want y'all to get his book. I have it on Kindle. Uh, oh, thank chosen you. Chosen <laughs> people um, to, to go deeper into what he's saying. But is there anything else that you would like our audience to know? um outside of getting your book is available on amazon and also at the end of that share 
your uh your uh twitter handle with our audience oh sure absolutely um so for the audience um i would just like to share that you know south sudan and the south Sudanese church um specifically right now is kind of going through a hard time um clerics have been under attack in recent years and so um i would encourage you you know even if it's just a simple google search south sudan church right just to you know learn about this very unique african church and the experience of christians in that country um you know i, I believe that it would absolutely be something that would interest you um and then lastly uh my twitter handle is at c Council one that is at C T is in Tom O U N S E L and the number one. Um, I am active on my account, and so um, I will uh, engage with you um, if you would like to engage with me on Twitter. Well, thank you so much. It's been a rich conversation. Um, thank you all for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. Remember, you can catch all our episodes on our website at jew3project.org. You can listen on your favorite, wherever podcast, you stream your favorite podcast, watch it on Facebook, YouTube, the whole gamut. You can get our curriculum through Eyes of Color, the contextualized guide to helping you know what you believe and why. Uh, you can take an online course. You could give. You could get merch all at jew3project.org. Org. Remember here at the Jew 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Until next time, grace and peace and God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to jew3project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.